This edition of the Supercluster podcast is powered by Dropbox. Here at Supercluster headquarters in New York City, we use Dropbox every day to produce our content, including this podcast. Hello, space fans, and welcome to another edition of the Supercluster podcast. This is Jamie at Supercluster headquarters in New York, and I'm here with Amanda. Hey. And Joe. Hi. And on this episode, we're going to explore the story of how a one-eyed farm boy with a sixth grade education changed the face of aviation just because he wanted to. <laughs> this is the story of Wiley Post and his adventures at the edge of space. Mm, that was such an illustrious introduction. <laughs> I feel like I'm in a comic book. Welcome to the Supercluster Podcast. So guys, for this story, we need to go back in time a little farther than we normally would for a space story. This is before the space station or the shuttle, before the moon landing, before Gagarin and Sputnik. Before TV, before everyone had a car, the early 1900s. This is the days of the Wright brothers. Planes were made of wood and canvas and flown by daredevils. Uh, so where did you guys grow up? I don't really know where you, where each of you are from. Funny you should ask that. I was um, about to say the same thing. Yeah. We grew up in very close proximity in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Connecticut. Oh, okay. And so are you small town people? Or I don't really know that area too well. Are you small towns or big yeah, towns? Yeah, like or? everybody Smallish. knows everybody. Yeah. One high school, um, walk everywhere. Right. That kind of place. And Amanda, similar for you? Maybe a little bigger? Similar, maybe a little bigger. I definitely don't walk places. Hmm. Well, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but I wanted to get in the context of where you're from because I think where Wiley Post is from and where he ended up is really an important part of his story. He was essentially a man from nowhere. Uh, he's described as being born on November 22nd, 1898, near Grand Saline, Texas. And the reason they can only say near Grand Saline is his town was so small, it wasn't even printed on maps. After he was born in Texas, his parents moved around a lot to try and find work. But they eventually settle in Maysville, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma will become his home. Wiley didn't get much education. He didn't like school. He quit at age uh, 13. This is about sixth grade uh, to work on the farm. Nice that you could do that. At that point in history. I Not kinda, an option these days. Yeah, I kind of wanted to do that, mm. but it felt pretty illegal. Mm. Were you going to work on a farm or just quit it? I would go work on a farm if I had the choice. Yeah, it's funny too because the school year was based around the idea that everyone had to have the summer off to right. go right. work the fields. Oh. But now we've really disconnected it from that. No, it's know? actually more about going on vacation, I right. think, yeah. is what it feels like Swim it's practice. operating around. Yeah. But at this time, it was much more like having a big family meant you had a lot of people to work on the farm. Right. So even though he wasn't well-educated, he was really into mechanical things, and that became his useful role on the farm. In fact, even before he quit school, by the age of 11, he was making money going around to neighbors, repairing their sewing machines, their gas generators, fixing up their tractors, things like that. So from very young, he loved machines. However, when he was 15 years old, his oldest brother took him overnight 50 miles on a horse and carriage to a county fair. And they went there essentially to see all the farm equipment because Wiley Post mm. was thinking there'll be all this cool stuff. I can look at the machinery, tinker around. As they show up there in the morning, he's walking across the field and he sees an airplane sitting in the field and he's mesmerized instantly. And it's an open cockpit plane with those thin wings like you imagine from, uh, you know, World War I flying ace, mm. but like a really old rickety one. And no one's around, so he just climbs in and he sits in the cockpit and he ends up staying there all day. He just skips the fare. He's playing around in this cockpit. And from that moment on, he knew that he wanted to fly these machines. Later on, recalling this, Wiley Post would say, To this day, I've never seen a bit of machinery for land, sea, or sky that has taken my breath away as did that old pusher. 
Have either of you had that type of moment in your life that's just a turning point when you see something and you decide I'm going to be a violinist or whatever it is? I don't know. I think that's one of those funny things about like creation myths or origin stories. Like when you're in the moment, these actions, I think, seem kind of random. But when you like look back over the crest of your life, you see one chain of events that all link together in this very logical, successive manner. I definitely buy into that idea of like the things that you're exposed to when you're young and the people who make the effort to expose you to those things are super critical. I mean, obviously if his older brother had not like gone out of his way to take him this long distance, he probably would not be at all who he is. And that detail makes me think about my parents taking me to art museums when I was really young and like forcing me to walk through all the Henry Moore sculptures. Thanks mom. Yeah. Um, which is something I did not want to do. I wanted to go get ice cream. Um, but I could probably accredit that as like a critical link in that chain extending backwards to my decision to become a commercial artist today. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting how people become what they're going to become. And mm -hmm. in this story, it seems like there's, you know, so much about his origin that wouldn't lead to where he eventually goes. And even maybe it's in hindsight, it's more clear, mm -hmm. but he does point to this moment as being this changing moment. Um, if he had not become a pilot, maybe he wouldn't be telling the story in the same way. Mm. From this moment that he makes this decision, he realizes there's some really big hurdles between where he is now and actually being a world famous pilot or even a successful one of any type. The first thing you need to do is learn to fly, which is not so easy at a time when planes themselves are rare. Next, he would have to figure out on his meager depression era pay how to buy an aircraft because you're pretty much going to have to have your own aircraft at this mm -hmm. point. There aren't really practical airlines. You can't just go work for United Airlines and, and do it that way. And there aren't that many flight schools. But then also, if he wanted to do this better than everybody else, to be a pilot was also to be a tinkerer. He would have to learn how airplanes worked and then learn how to improve them. Much like hot riding a car, it's up to you to make your airplane better if you want to break records uh, and win races and things like that. So his story essentially is the pursuit of becoming the best pilot in the world. And along the way, he would help pave the way for exploration of space. So his first opportunity to learn to fly is unfortunately World War I. Wiley being too young to join the war joins the Student Army Training Corps, hoping that he can learn to fly. But instead they had him studying math and chemistry. Uh, then he got stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma where there were plans for flight operations. So he got his hopes up, but he ended up just building the airfield and not getting to fly on it. Then they started training him as a radio operator, which was also frustrating because that wasn't getting him in a plane. And he was almost ready to graduate from the Training Corps and then the war ended. So that's good news for the world, bad news for Wiley Post's chance of flying. So he decides to work as a handyman and a roughneck in the oil fields of Oklahoma. What's a roughneck? A roughneck is essentially like the brute force on an oil rig. So you have to have a certain amount of technical knowledge because you're like dealing with pressures and pipe fittings and everything. But essentially, you're a big, huge hammer swinging, wrench turning kind of person. Cool. Um, and it's also somewhat dangerous because you're moving a lot of heavy weight and, you know, high pressure and things like so that. So what age... Is he at? At this point, he would have been maybe around 20. Let me just look just here. He's a young boy. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, he's about 20 years old. So he goes to be a roughneck and he's not making much money. It's $7 a day. And of course, this is 100 years ago, but it's still not a lot. And he tried to drill for his own oil, which is something you could do. You could just go around and drill. There was still open lands in the United States. And if you struck oil, you could become rich. But he wasn't very successful. And then the price of oil dropped. So the little bit of oil he could find was not worth very much. And he lost everything. So he has no money left. And unfortunately, uh, Wiley Post turned to armed robbery. <laughs> wow. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. 
He set up a roadblock and fanned down passing cars, and then he would hold up the driver with a gun. And he was successful at this for several months, you know, making little bits of money that people had. But then he chose the wrong car. And there were four huge men in this car, and they attacked him and brought him to the police. Damn. He was sentenced to 10 years in the Granite Reformatory. The Granite Reformatory. It sounds cold. Yeah, it sounds like a rough time. Yeah. It sounds cold. I don't think bleak. People don't have a good time there. They don't have good food. At this point, Wiley fell into a deep depression, which is understandable. Yeah. Yeah. He was so depressed, though, that the prison medical staff actually gave him a formal diagnosis of chronic melancholy, which is their name for mm. uh, clinical oh depression. Gosh. For a time, he refused to speak or eat while he was in prison. But luckily, even though he was sentenced for 10 years, he was paroled after only 13 months. So one year, one month, he gets out. He would continue to feel shame and embarrassment about this for the rest of his life. But from the moment he got out, he said, I'm gonna put this behind me. This was a mistake. It's not my destiny. And later on, when he would become famous, he even tried to hide this. and He didn't want people to know that he had done this. Now it's 1922, he's 24 years old, and he decides, okay, the oil fields, that's the only way we're gonna make money. So he's out there working day in, day out, trying to make some money. And as the story goes, a plane flew overhead and that reignited his passion when he saw it flying. And he just said, I can't do this. He quit on the spot and he went to pursue. It's an iconic shot in the movie, in the biopic. Yeah, totally. The biopic. This guy right? can see it. That we're developing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Throws down his hammer, yeah. wipes off his brow. And he's like, that's me. I got to go there. I got to go, mama. I'll be back later. So he quits the oil fields and he thinks, I've got to find some people who are flying for money and I've got to go talk my way onto their crew somehow because I got to learn to fly. And he learns that nearby the Burrell Tibbs Flying Circus, which is a group of stunt pilots, are going to be at the fair. And he walks up to their camp and just starts chatting them up. He's like, oh, my God, you guys are so cool. And they're talking about the fact that they have this parachute jumper. So they would fly a plane up to a few thousand feet. Someone would walk out on the wing and then jump off and parachute down. And this is amazing because mm. most of the crowd has never seen an airplane, let alone uh, seen someone jump out of one. Yeah. So as he's talking to them, he learns that they've made three successful jumps that week, but their jumper injured himself on the fourth and they don't have anybody to jump. So Wiley Post seizes the moment. He sees this as his chance and he volunteers to be the replacement jumper. What the hell? Now, mind you, Wiley Post has never been inside of an airplane. Such a movie. Other than sitting in the cockpit of one on the ground, and he's going to jump out on his first flight. So he gets in the plane. They go, okay, sure. He just kind of acts like this is normal. He's ready to do it. Also, this is 1925. There's no OSHA. There's no, like, mm. no one's checking this. Yeah. Just do it. I mean, it. he was a bank robber for a couple of months. Or totally. Armed robber, so... He can be whatever he wants. Yeah. So he goes up in the plane. They get up to altitude and the guy yells at him, okay, go. And he's tethered by this little tether and he walks out on the wing. And then he looks out and he's amazed. He's like, this is the best thing ever. And he kind of gets distracted. The guy has to yell at him to jump off. He jumps off, but he forgets to pull the ripcord. He's dangling by the plane and then pulls it and parachutes down and lands to the cheers of the crowd. And then he gets hired and he works for them Damn. for months as their parachute jumper. Best day of his life. Yeah. The first time that Wiley Post flew in an airplane, he jumped out of it and he loved it. So that was step one because in his spare time in between jumping out of the plane, he had the pilot teach him how to fly it. So now he knows how to fly, at least how to fly this one particular little plane. The problem is, this is fun. He's learning how to fly. Everything's great. He does 91 jumps, but he's not making enough money to buy his own plane. He's just sort of sustaining himself. And he can, you know, have a nice fun life, but he can't achieve his dreams. By the way, uh, would you do that? 
If you really wanted to be a pilot, would you do it if the barrier to entry was you have to parachute out the first time you ever ride in a plane? It's so impossible to know, to put yourself in that situation. I, I feel I feel comfortable saying that I wouldn't. Have either of you been skydiving? Never. Mm-mm. I have not either, yeah. I've never even been on an airplane that has like an open cockpit. Oh, like have you been in an unpressurized plane, like the little tiny like, ones? Yes. Or? But I don't know. I could imagine the religious experience of that for him because it was his obsession for so long. It was obsession while he suffered in the oil fields, his obsession while he was imprisoned, like to finally be there. It's like, it must've been some kind of nirvana for him. Seriously. And also like thinking about the world that he lived in like that. I'm just thinking, just like trying to equate it to an experience that I would be that unfamiliar with. Yeah, because he had never he like that the the idea of planes flying and people falling from the sky was so foreign. Yeah, he left the ground. I think like, like yeah, it's like it's almost like I I can't even answer that question because the context around it is almost impossible I to wonder replicate. If the equivalent for someone our age now would be going to space as an as an average person. I think it would be. Or maybe like given where we are now, being the first person to land on Mars and that's your first flight in yeah. a spaceship. Yeah, you is know? that an equivalent like, experience? I guess, mm. but it's also like there's no, you can't just like go jump off into space, yeah. <laughs> you know? Without training. Yeah. I think if someone was like, will you go to Mars for us tomorrow? I would probably say yes to that because that feels like destiny. That feels like an opportunity to be like a rare human being. And I would imagine that's how he felt in that moment, like a rare human being. Yeah. When are you standing at a turning point in life and you can just see it? You exactly. can just see the road that's forks rare. here and there's yeah. a sign of where I go if I go that way. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's a really good example. If someone just walked in this room and said, do you want to go to Mars? You're the one. How could you how say could no? How could you say no? Yeah. Yeah. So now he knows how to fly. This is a big deal, but he's got to figure out how to get money. So he's in the oil fields and this time he's trying wildcatting, which is where you essentially just drill holes and hope that you strike oil. This is difficult if you don't have any kind of scientific methods or something, but he decides this is my way. And it's late uh, 1926, October. It's his second day out in the oil fields. And nearby, another roughneck is pounding a bolt with a big heavy sledgehammer, and it's metal on metal. The bolt shatters, and a shard of metal is launched into the air and pierces Wiley Post's left eye. What? So The uh, movie, like, writes itself, honestly. I don't... It's... How is this not... Yeah. In theaters. A a man who wants to be a pilot. Yeah. He's immediately hospitalized. Both eyes are completely bandaged because the injury is so severe. He only sees darkness for several days in the hospital, and he's lying there thinking about the fact that he might never fly again. For a pilot losing sight in even one eye can end your career. He hadn't even gotten his own plane yet, and he feared he might never fly again. When they removed the bandages, his left eye stayed dark. However, there was hope for the right eye. He could see vague, blurry lights and shapes, but an infection was spreading from the left eye into the right eye, and the doctors gave him a choice. They said, we can remove your left eye, and you have a chance to see with your right, or we can try and save them both, but most likely you'll go completely blind. So they removed the eye. This experience would do two things for Wiley Post. First, it gave him the eye patch that would become a signature of his look and his fame. 
And second, it would give him $1,689 in workman's compensation settlement money from the Oklahoma Industrial Court. Let's go, boys. (laughs) Which is enough money to buy his own airplane. Oh, wow. I bought a plane, but it cost me an eye. That's what Wiley Post said (laughs) later. Um, So in... I, I want I want you to know just how what's happening in my brain as you tell the story. I'm obviously picturing it. Yeah. And in my version, Ryan Gosling is playing Wiley Post. Cool. Interesting. Who is it for you? Joaquin. Ooh. It's Joaquin and Paul Thomas Anderson is directing. Oh. Okay. okay. We're in the oil fields in Oklahoma. A okay. lot of wides. Really dusty color palette. <laughs> yes. 70 millimeter. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got the beautiful convex lens. I'm trying to figure out how to work Timothy Chalamet into this. I think that might have Plays to come. Plays him when he's young. Yeah. I thought about that, but I feel like the continuity is at risk there. Like, because mm. they look a little bit too different. There's a lot of peripheral yeah. characters, you know, in, in fact. Edges. It's a busy story. Um, I had to leave things out. I'm sure you could cast anybody you need to in that whole pantheon of other people in the story. Yeah. Um, But you said you were picturing it in your head. Was there any more? No, that was it. Yeah. That's that's it for me. Um, (laughs) That was the story. (laughs) So um, something is happening uh, in a coincident time with this, and that's that flight, civil aviation is all becoming a little bit more formal. So all of a sudden, the idea of getting a pilot's license is a thing. So while Wiley Post is healing from his injury, he goes to live on his uncle's farm to convalesce, as they say back in the day. Mm -hmm. And he works on his depth perception because he knows that he's never going to be able to get these new fancy pilot's licenses if he can't judge depth. He can't fly if he can't tell how far away things are. So what he would do is he would look at something in the distance and then guess how far away it was and then he'd pace it out. Knowing how fast he walked, he'd figure out how far it was. And then eventually he could just judge distances by the size and landmarks and things and he became better at depth perception than most people who have two working eyes. And he would eventually get his pilot's license with a specific exception from uh, the medical pilot person because they had realized that he had this ability. An interesting little uh, note here, his pilot's license was signed by Orville Wright of the Wright Brothers because they were working for the government at the time. That's how small this community of flyers was. So he has the money and he buys his first plane. It's a wrecked plane that he has to rebuild. But, you know, he's a mechanical guy, so that's fine. It's an open cockpit Curtis JN4, usually called the Jenny. And this is basically the training craft for all the World War I pilots. So if you just picture the stereotypical World War I plane with a little open cockpit, little canvas wings and everything, that's what he's flying. What color was it? Um, I assume that it was just like wood and raw canvas gotcha because there were so many That's built cool. and they were training crafts like so you're not gonna though. like doll it up sure. they made them out of wood yes wow. at the time most aircraft were made of wood with stretched canvas over it and then the engine and some of the taut wires and stuff would be the only metal on the plane and this was mostly done for weight reasons right. but as metal working and manufacturing riveting and everything got better we started making planes out of metal this was not a particularly high-end plane it has 75 horsepower engine had a ceiling of 6,500 feet, but it was good for stunts and showing off. So he made money as a barnstormer. Barnstormer is essentially like a backcountry stunt flyer where you fly around doing loop-de-loops and people pay to take a ride in your plane or kind of go to a little small-scale air show starring you. So he's performing in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and a very momentous thing happens. He meets the 17-year-old May Lane. Here we go. Who would become the love, love of his life? Yep. This is the woman that he would marry. And do you want to know how long he waited to marry May Lane? Not long. Four months. Shot in the dark. 
I bet it was like a week and a half. He married her the same day. Oof. This guy is go. passionate. Yeah, he knows what he wants. He knows what he wants and he goes after it quick. Yeah. He makes moves. Yeah. So now he's married and life is going pretty good, but he's still only barely making a living with the stunt flying. And then he has a minor crash in his plane and it's okay, but he can't even afford to fix it. So he has a new wife. He's thinking about maybe I'm going to start a family or something. There's going to be other expenses and I still can't fly because the thing is broken. So he's grounded once again in dire need of funds. You'll see this cycle going over Mm -hmm. and over again. And he approaches this oil man, one of the very successful wildcatters that he had met in his oil days. This guy, by the way, drilled 300 holes that came up with oil and only two that came up dry. That's how successful that guy was. Damn. His name is Florence Hall, known as FC, to his friends. The reason he wanted to get a plane is that his deals were being made on a time basis. So sometimes he'd need to get somewhere to land somewhere and he'd lose the deal because he couldn't get there quick enough. So the idea is you buy a plane, you can zip over there, have your private pilot, and this is a huge advantage in business. Wiley Post convinces him to hire him as his pilot even though he only has one eye. So he flies FC Hall around for a while and this is pretty good. He's making pretty good money. The problem is then it's October 1929. Uh Which is the Great Mm. Depression. Oh, God. So global stock market crash. FC Hall has to sell his plane. So (gasps) Wiley Post is once again grounded because of the Great Depression. Sadly, he's not flying. However, something nice happens here. Post goes to work as a test pilot for the Lockheed Aircraft Company in Burbank. There just aren't that many jobs for pilots, so this is something he can do. And he thinks, I'll probably fly some cool new planes. But it is here that he meets his second true love after May Lane, which is the Lockheed Vega. Okay. I'm going to show you this plane. Wow. A very cool, old-timey, Indiana Jones kind of plane. I like it. You could fit fit some friends back there, too. Seven passenger planes. Get the boys, get in the plane. Sweet. And this is in Burbank? Yes. So Lockheed is developing this plane in Burbank. It's about to go on sale. He's there as a test pilot. So he spends some time essentially testing it and is thinking to himself, someday I got to get me one of these because this is going to be the plane that takes me around the world, lets me break records. Luckily, FC Hall starts to make more money. It's still the depression. The depression went on for five, six years, but Wiley Post begins flying for him again. They're flying around in their little open cockpit plane, and at one point they get caught in a storm. And so you have this rich oil man who's getting rained on, and he kind of hates it. So when he lands, Wiley Post takes advantage of this moment to convince him to buy a Lockheed Vega, because it's a closed cabin aircraft. Perfect. All weather. Yes. Lucky for Wiley, he's given total freedom to customize his brand new Vega. (gasps) So he designs his dream plane. Okay. And then he also works into the deal, I'll fly the plane for you, but only if you let me enter air races with it. I want to use it as my hot rod to fly these air races, specifically the National Air Race Derby from LA to Chicago. So they make the deal. Here's the plane. Gloss white, blue stripes along the side. Nice. It's named the Winnie Mae, which is FC Hall's daughter. Cost $22,000 at the time. Can we adjust that for inflation? I have a computer. So this would have been, just do 1930. $22,000. It's just about $321,000. So $321,000 in today's money still sounds like a pretty good deal for a super fancy private. Yeah, not bad. Oh, yeah. And remember, his first plane had a 75 horsepower engine. This one has a 420 horsepower Wasp engine. He also had some modifications built into it to make it better than any other Lockheed Vega. 
He asks them to set the wings at a slightly lower angle, which lessens drag at high speeds. So he plans to fly as fast as possible and optimize for that, not the slow speeds. He also took four inches off of the tail length so that he can land rougher, so that when he's coming in, he can be faster and he won't bounce off the runway. As a result, the top speed was 10 miles per hour faster than any other Vega from the factory. He also added additional fuel tanks that gave him 350 gallons more capacity, so he had better range than any other Vega. He called it the last word in airplanes. This would become his baby. So his first race, he enters in 1930, the men's air derby race from Los Angeles to Chicago. He flies the Winnie Mae with a broken compass, but he still wins the race by wow. more than a full minute in a nine hour, nine minute flight that broke the record for that distance between these two cities. FC Hall is so impressed by this that he says, Wiley, you have free reign to fly in any air race you choose. So he decides that his next adventure is going to be a race around the world, trying to break the record. Until this time, the circumnavigation record was actually held by a Zeppelin called called Graf Zeppelin, and that was the fastest way to get around the world, is in a balloon, a dirigible. So he wants to break that record, and he enlists the help of this famed Australian navigator named Harold Gaddy to aid him in this quest. So Post and Gaddy are preparing for their flight, Gaddy's playing the routes, Post is improving the plane with better seats, better instruments, and a dedicated navigation station in the back. So they took off from Roosevelt Field on Long Island, June 3rd, 1931, and then eight days, 15 hours, and 51 minutes later, they landed at the same field, having broken the record for the fastest time around the globe. Post and Gaddy were celebrated with a ticker tape parade in NYC and lunch at the White House, but that wasn't enough for Wiley. He decided that he wanted to take <laughs> the trip again, but this time he'd do it alone. To accomplish this, he added a robot pilot to the Winnie Mae, which is one of the earliest forms of autopilot, with a radio compass. Then he flew solo around the world in seven days, 18 hours, and 49 minutes, even faster than he had done uh, with Gaddy's help. Boom. Second ticker tape parade in NYC. And he's Man now... an insatiable appetite yeah. for parades and world records. <laughs> for celebration. Yeah. He's just a parade addict. That's what we yeah, found out. Yeah, that's what it was all for. So now Wiley Post is a superstar. He has worldwide fame just from uh, these two records. Everybody around the world knows who he is. When he lands for his solo flight, 50,000 people are there to watch him land. So wow. it's like a music festival. Mm -hmm. At this point, he's consulting with people like Amelia Earhart. When she wants to buy a new plane, calls up Wiley Post and says, test it out for me. So he's the authority. After Charles Lindbergh, he's the most famous pilot in the world. But Wiley Post wanted to go even faster, of course. He wanted to try next to win the McRobertson race, which is a race from England to Australia. But he wanted to guarantee a win, so he knew he'd need to go faster than ever before. And this is where it gets really interesting and starts connecting to spaceflight. He knew that he would have to fly higher to go faster. Apart from the fact that the air is thinner at high altitude, so it's easier to push through it, he also suspected that up there there were very strong winds, what we now know as the jet stream, and you could get that as a tailwind and take advantage of it. However, this comes with some very serious challenges. First, you have to figure out how to supercharge your engine to optimize for that high altitude flight condition because there's lower oxygen. So you've got to mechanically pump more air into your engine to get it to run. Second, he had to figure out how to breathe in an unpressurized wooden plane at heights above 30,000, 40,000, maybe 50,000 feet. Now that's 20,000 feet higher than the top of Mount Everest. That's double the altitude, which mountain climbers call the death zone because there's not enough oxygen for humans to breathe. Severe hypoxia sets in in seconds or minutes, and you can get the bends from climbing to that altitude too quickly because of the pressure change, just like a diver. Thirdly, he had to figure out how not to freeze to death because at that altitude, the temperature can drop to negative 75 degrees. Yeah, there's a whole lot of issues that I see with this. 
But somehow I think he'll survive. And also the interesting thing is you have all these problems solved for you every time you get in a commercial airliner. Yeah, I'm like learning so much. Thank you, Delta. (laughs) So finally, Wiley Post sets out to do what will become his defining achievement. In order to accomplish this, he realizes that if he can't pressurize his plane, he's just going to pressurize himself. He knows that he wants to build a pressure suit so that inside the suit, he'll have an atmosphere of pressure and the ability to breathe, and then the plane can just be the plane. So he approaches the BF Goodrich company because they were the experts in rubber. That's the tire people who make Mm -hmm. tires. They gave the job to their internal engineers and they thought, okay, we're going to base this around like a diving suit. We have a diving helmet and all this stuff. But Wiley Post started to get frustrated because the progress was so slow. And he realized that's because they make tires. Like they don't know anything about making clothing. Luckily for Wiley, there was an engineer called Russell Coley who worked at the BF Goodrich company, who, even though he was a materials engineer, always wanted to work on women's dresses. But his family didn't like this. They forced him to go to engineering school. Time goes by and he ends up in this situation. So he seizes this moment and he makes much better patterns for Wiley Post. So essentially what the pressure suit has to do is allow pressure to be held inside the suit, but also he has to be able to move. When you pressurize a pressure suit, it becomes stiff. You become like Michelin Man and Mm. you can't move around. And that's the central problem. Lots of people were experimenting either with rigid pressure suits or pressure suits where you don't move. Like people are trying high altitude ballooning where they just Mm. sit there and the balloon just goes up and then comes back down. So the primary thing that they solved was how to make a pressure suit that you can actually operate an aircraft while wearing. So they ended up making three suits. The first one, they pressurized it, it ruptured, that's over. Took off the suit, no good. The second one is using the same helmet as the first, but with a new body. Now this one worked kind of well, but once he was secured into the suit, Wiley Post complained that it was too tight, because what had happened is that the the guy making the suit measured him, then Wiley Post went and flew around the world and did all this crazy stuff and gained some weight and came back. And it was so tight that once he was in it, they couldn't get him out of it without cutting it apart to get him out. So they destroyed the suit. The third suit, they used what they learned from the first two, and this is the one that he actually flew in. He nicknamed it the Man from Mars because it was such a crazy looking thing, and it was made of three layers. There was a long underwear underneath, then an inner black rubber air pressure bladder, essentially like the tube from a tire, and then an outer layer of rubberized parachute fabric. So it's like a densely woven fabric that has a layer of rubber in it. Now the outer layer is glued to a semi-rigid frame to help it hold the pressure, and it has arms and leg joints so he can move around and operate the plane, and he can walk, but he has to walk bent over because they made the frame in a sitting position so that it would be most comfortable (laughs) and not under stress when he's flying the plane. Attached to that frame are pigskin gloves, sort of form-fitting gloves with laces all the way up the side, rubber boots, and then an aluminum and plastic diver's helmet. It's a cylindrical helmet with a big round porthole that was slightly offset because he only has one eye. Wow. Damn. The photo reminds me of the villain in SpongeBob. I think when you go into Davy Jones' locker... He's in there. There's an episode. It's neither here nor there, but pop cultural relevance. I wonder if that's where it came from. I'm going to assume that Wiley Post was inspired by Spongebob. Mm. That's how <laughs> yeah, I'm going to yeah, do yeah. it. That's, that's, that's how I'm right. assuming it We'll fact check yeah. that. It's advanced for the time, but it's pretty DIY. It has like wing nuts holding the helmet onto the thing. When they first inflated it, the helmet started lifting off because they hadn't made it right. And they realized they had to strap it down to hold it down onto his shoulders. There was also a throat microphone inside the helmet. It would make pressure against your throat so they could hear what he said. And also earphones so they could communicate. He did a series mm. of five test flights, just wearing the suit, not pressurized, not going to high altitude just to make Make sure he could still fly a plane and see with this thing on. 
Now, the problem here, as always, is he's got to find funding for all these flights because he has to buy fuel, he has to refurbish the plane, he has to keep funding the suit. You know, he approaches companies and says, look, I'm going to break the altitude record. You can get lots of fame. It's kind of like Red Bull with the jump from space. Mm -hmm. It becomes a spectacle. So the pure oil company, which is now part of Chevron, like a, you know, a gas company, as part of the Chicago World's Fair, sponsors a flight to 42,000 feet on September 5th, 1934. This is an outrageous altitude. People can't even imagine what that would be like. But there's no official body there to certify the record. So it's something that happens at a fair, he can claim it, but it's not an official record yet. So he knows that he has to continue going and get something official. So now he approaches a different oil man, Willie D. Billy Parker, the aviation director for Phillips Petroleum. He explains that his other sources of financing for his stratosphere experiments are drying up. And so then the guy agrees that if he flies to Bartlesville, Oklahoma, where he is, and gives him a demo, he can seal the deal. So he does this. And then in Oklahoma, he does another series of flights sponsored by this guy. In these, he reportedly reached 50,000 feet. However, according to the officials at the time, it takes two independent means to verify a record. To do this, they had installed two barographs, essentially pressure sensors, in the fuselage. The National Aeronautic Association, an official body, had installed these. However, both barographs failed on all but one of his flights, and one failed at one point with the other recording only 38,000 feet, so they had no way to certify the altitude record. So even though Wiley Post knew to himself that he had gone to 50,000 feet, he still did not have the altitude record for a pilot. But you know, Wiley Post, of course, never gives up. So he decides he wants to fly across the entire USA in a high altitude flight because this is going to allow him to break both speed records and altitude records. He wants to make further modifications to the Winnie Mae to make this work. And the most dramatic one is he wants to take off the landing gear because the landing gear doesn't fold up. It just sits there. So he works with a guy in Burbank, California to install a lever. So after he takes off, he can jettison the landing gear. Wow. It just falls off. So then he has to reinforce the bottom of the fuselage so he can make skid landings because he has no <laughs> right. landing gear. Yeah. Have either of you ever been in a seaplane where you land on the water? No, no. I always wanted to. Have you, Jamie? I have. Yeah. It's pretty nice. fun. I've never been in a plane that just lands on its belly, yeah. not in the water. Mm -mm. That sounds crazy. Sounds uncomfortable. It's like it would tip over or shift to one side or the other. Yeah. It sounds a little spooky. So he does this and then he needs another sponsor. So he gets Transcontinental and Western Airlines, better known as TWA eventually. But they say, we want you to carry, guess what, airmail and a bunch of special postage stamps so that they can call it the first airmail stratospheric flight. It's a catchy name. Yes. Don't blame him. <laughs> February 22nd, Wiley takes off, but the engine begins to leak oil after only 31 minutes, which is pretty dangerous. The engine could seize up, he could fall out of the sky. So this forces him to land on Muroc Dry Lake, just a big open lake bed. He's only 57 miles away from where he took off. He can't take the pressure suit off. So he walks out of his plane and he's running across an open field and he stumbles over to this general store to ask a guy for help. A man named H.E. Mertz, running the H.E. Mertz general store, looks at him and faints because he's in this crazy suit that makes him look like he's a space invader. Amazing. So then, you know, Wiley eventually gets some help and he gets his plane back to the hangar. And upon further investigation, he discovers something really sinister. Someone has poured emery dust, you know, like an emery board to yeah. file your fingernails, like a sandy, sharp dust into the mechanics of his engine, into the oil pan. So this is what caused the malfunction that ended the flight. It was deliberate sabotage. And he never found out who did that. <gasps> wow, sinister. Yeah. Oh, in, in my movie, they would find out, I think. No, I think, 
I think it's better if you don't, you know, it's like there's just these dark forces on the perimeter. I want to follow that plot and see where it takes me. Yeah, it makes me really curious because he had rivals. Who would not, yeah, I was going to say, who would not want him to achieve this? Well, they were friendly rivals. All the rivals I heard about in my research of his life at one point or another helped him and he Mm -hmm. helped them because they were, you know, like... Like race car drivers, you want to win, but you also want to just see somebody go really fast. Yeah. So I have no idea um, who would have done that. The only thing I could think is maybe a competing oil man. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Who didn't want the PR? Competing competing airline who hated TWA. Yeah. Want to see them burn. After some repairs, he decides that he's going to make one more attempt. He's got to try this again. But this time, he doesn't make it all the way across the United States. From Burbank, he makes it to Cleveland, Ohio, before his oxygen ran out. He can no longer produce enough to breathe. He lands, and he removes the pressure suit, but then he learns that he had flown 2,035 miles in a record amount of time, 7 hours and 19 minutes, which means that he had broken the average ground speed record for an airplane in that flight. The average speed was 279 miles per hour, which is approximately 100 miles per hour faster than the top speed of that plane is supposed to be. He did two more flights. The first ended after his supercharger failed and the second ended because a piston in the engine burned out. You can start to see a pattern here. The Winnie Mm. May is breaking down. It's just not made to be doing these crazy high speed, 60% faster than your top speed flights. So he decides that it's too old for any further attempts. However, he had achieved his goal. He proved that a pressure suit could be used to fly at extreme altitudes, perhaps even beyond the Earth's atmosphere. He had broken the speed record and the altitude record of any other flight. So he retires the Winnie Mae and sells it to the Smithsonian Institution for display. They also, by the way, have one of his pressure suits that's been like refurbished so that you can go look at it. Here I want to pause for a second and talk about Will Rogers. Do either of you guys know about Will Rogers? I don't know if you have any like musical theater fans or something. Will Mm. Rogers at this time was one of the most famous people in the world, like a mega omni-media celebrity. He was a film actor, a vaudeville performer. He was a cowboy. He could do crazy rope tricks. A humorist, a columnist, syndicated in thousands of newspapers. He was also a Cherokee citizen who was born in Oklahoma, just like Wiley Post. He had made 71 films. Most of them were in the silent era. Then he made some talkies. Basically a famous funny guy that could comment on anything and everybody loved him. He also loved aviation. He's constantly writing about it. At one point, Wiley Post gave him a ride in his plane and they became friends. After his experimental record-breaking flights, Wiley Post once again is having trouble making money. Nobody really wants to hire him as a pilot because he's a stuntman, you know, like Pan Am exists at this point and TWA and everything, but who wants to hire the guy who always flies crazy, who has one eye? One CEO was quoted as saying, you're good for headlines, you know, but not for employment. Mm -hmm. But he had heard that his casual friend, Will Rogers, his famous celebrity, had always wanted to visit Alaska. Alaska was like this new fancy place. So Wiley Post approached him with a proposal. Let's go a tour through Alaska. Will Rogers thinks it's a great idea and he agrees to fund the trip and buy a plane for him. Wiley Post builds a plane out of the parts from other planes for this one because he has specific ideas and he also doesn't have that much money. And it's gonna be a seaplane. He bases it around a Lockheed Orion Explorer plane, but he's using like the wings from one and the pontoons from another and the engine from a third, but it flies. So they start out having a really good time on this trip. There's good weather, there's beautiful landscapes, and uh, Will Rogers is in the the back typing away at his typewriter. What could go wrong? And anytime they want, they can stop and go fishing or hunting or just take in the scenery. Sounds absolutely beautiful. Mm. Will Rogers is writing about it and loving it. It's everything that he had dreamed of. By the way, this is only two months after these stratospheric flights. This is how fast things were happening for Wiley Post. On August 15th, 1935, they take off to go to Barrow, Alaska, which is the last point before the North Pole, way up in Alaska. 
but Wiley Post neglected to check the weather report. Soon they were caught in dense fog and they were unable to find their way to the destination. They didn't know which way they were going and they're running a little low on fuel. So they land in the nearest flat area that they can find. There are some Eskimos there. They ask them for the directions. They help them out getting a line to take off again in their plane and they get their bearings. He starts up the plane. On takeoff, Wiley Post likes to bank right and climb sharply because he only has one eye, because it aligns his eye with the horizon in a particular way that helps him get his bearings. But unfortunately, the Franken plane was too front heavy. And as he's climbing, it stalls out. And the front noses down and they crash and the plane inverts. And both men are killed instantly. These two Eskimos, who maybe had never seen a plane, had just watched two of the most famous people in the world die in one. What? So this causes worldwide mourning. There's all kinds of famous people at both funerals. Will Rogers is so famous that flags are at half-staff across the nation. This is the biggest story in the world when it happens. That's the end of the Wiley Post story. It's surprisingly brief. He only lived 36 years, but in that relatively short time, he became a legend. There was only four years from the time that he flew around the world with Harold Gaddy to when he crashed with Will Rogers. Four years to go from being a nobody pilot to being one of the most famous aviators in the world. A sixth grade dropout with chronic depression and only one eye. Hell of a ride. A modern day Icarus. Yes. Building wings out of wax. There were a lot of different ways that he was honored. At the crash site in Alaska, there are two monuments that mark the place where the two men died. There are several airports that bear the names of Wiley Post and Will Rogers. There's also Wiley Post Road in Bell, California, which is in between Bandini Boulevard, Bandini was a race car driver, and Lindbergh Lane. Wiley Post has also been immortalized in many halls of fame, including the National Aviation Hall of Fame, the International Air and Space Hall of Fame in San Diego, and the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. In 1979, the United States Postal Service created two stamps to honor Wiley Post, and of course, they were airmail stamps. So that's it. I think for me, the lesson from this story was, you know, follow your dream, do what you want to do. It's incredible that this guy from nowhere just decided to break these records and then invented a way to do it. Yeah, sometimes change is slow and incremental, and sometimes people come along and they just push the meter Mm -hmm. as hard as they can. For a brief time. Yeah. I can't imagine going all in on something like that. Yeah. He just wanted to fly. Yeah, he sounds like a person who lived without compromise. Yeah. I wonder if after he got out of prison, he felt like his whole life was kind of on loan. Like that he was never supposed to get there in the first place. And then when he did, it's like there was never never a second chance for him, never an alternate option. I think you might be right. That it was just one of those moments where he's like, I can either go up or down. Yeah. I'm glad. I mean... I think he would have wanted to go out that way. Yeah, I think I agree. Some people say that there's a romance to the fact that they were headed for Barrow, Alaska, being the northernmost station before the North Pole. Hmm. This is the man who flew twice around the world, and at the end of his story, he's at this distant, remote land, and not many people had seen Alaska. It was still something of an exotic place at this time. That pressure suit that he made truly was the basis for all of the pressure suits, known as full pressure suits, where Hmm. they hold an entire atmosphere inside, that would come after it. In fact, there's a NASA book, I believe it's called Dressing for Space, where they list the history of all these developments. And they start out with Wiley Post, even though he never went to space, even though he didn't get close to that Kármán line. He was the first one to prove that a practical pressure suit would work. 
And also, we didn't get into it too much here, but he made a lot of small advancements in altimeters and different aviation instruments and how to use a compass and how to use maps that would be the foundation for modern aviation for years and years and years until GPS was invented. So that's it for this episode of the Supercluster podcast. Remember that if you ever want to break international records or fly in space, just invent it yourself. Call your friends, solve all the problems, and be daring. And that's how you'll end up living in history. So thanks for listening. You can learn more about this story and other great space stories at our website, supercluster.com. And remember, as always, space is for everyone. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Amanda. 